Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Judges chapter 16. We're gonna continue our series this morning titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. The reason it's spelt wrong is purposeful because uh, we know by looking at that, I would say the majority of us know that that is not spelt correctly. The arrogance in it is the same arrogance that is here in the book of Judges. You have people telling the creator of the universe, trust me, I know what's right. I see stuff with my eyes. I know what I want, I know what I like, I know what's right, I'm gonna follow after that. And we see the foolishness and arrogance of that. Um, we see it in our kids by the way they live, but also we see it throughout this entire book of Judges as they live in this kind of cycle throughout the entire book. And so that's purposeful. We're not complete and total idiots that can't spell, it's spelt wrong for a purpose. So with that, Judges chapter 16 is where we're gonna be at. It is a big passage this morning and we're actually gonna read through all of it. Here's the main point, our hearts are bound. Our hearts are bound. If there's one thing I want us to walk away remembering, it's that our hearts are bound. Everyone in here's heart is bound, tethered, tied, and connected to something that we're giving our hearts to. This is language that appears in this text. It appears over and over and over again, the word bind or bound, um, that, 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 that a heart was given over. And then in the end, we see a man who originally had his eyesight, who becomes blind, and then he is bound, and then he is crushed, this guy is Samson. And so our hearts are bound. My challenge is this, what do we place our confidence in? What are the things that we place our confidence in in life, in a sense that we're giving our hearts to, that we're entrusting ourselves to, that our hearts are being bound, tied up, and connected in? 
In some ways, that's a relationship. In some ways, it's jobs, it's career, it's success. It's a lot of things. What are the things that we give ourselves to? Now, if you jumped inside of a, a, an Uber or a bus and Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder were driving it, would you feel confident? Probably not because they're blind. And so to hop inside of a bus with someone who's blind to be your driver is just going to be pretty foolish, right? And in a lot of ways, what we will see is putting our hope and confidence and trust in things of this world and giving our hearts over to them are just as foolish as well, especially the things that have the ability to crush us and the things that have the ability to just rob us of joy in our lives. So with that, let's pray and then let's dive in to the passage this morning. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your grace. It was just refreshing to hear, as Mark communicated this morning, that your grace is sufficient. Father, I pray that regardless of where people have come in this morning, maybe we have just fallen so far from the reminder of your grace. Maybe we've walked in this morning, God, with a heart of self-righteousness, believing that you are a God that can be manipulated or controlled by our actions and our emotions that somehow we have weaseled and worked our way out of your grace and out of your love because we have not upheld some end uh, uh, of the deal on our behalf, God. And I pray you would recorrect our theology, just correct our theology now. God, I pray for those in here that are broken, that are frustrated, that are bitter, that are angry. Father, I pray that you would remind them of the grace that you've poured out and given, that your Bible tells this one message over and over and over again. And it's a message of grace. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the good news of what you've done and accomplished through your son. Father, we thank you for a new space. We thank you for the work that's gone into this space. We thank you for Jason, his involvement, but for everyone who's helped. Father, I pray for our medical care workers, and specifically Daniel Millard, who's expressed just being overwhelmed, and for Devin Rogers, those that do call GCC their home and family, but those that are just overwhelmed and stressed. Father, we pray for them, pray you would strengthen them, Um, pray you would bring about healing through this time. We also pray that you would protect our community, which we're so thankful that you've done, Father. Protect our kids during this time. God bless them. Thank you for bringing a new staff member on. Thank you for your hand, your provision, your protection in every way for our church family. We pray that now you would speak to us through the power of your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. I don't think I have to elaborate what that means. You guys can figure it out. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight, he arose and, told, uh, and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Okay. <clears throat> Last week, or the week before that, we talked about what it looks like to make pleasure your treasure. Here is a man that is still making pleasure his treasure. He, he, he feeds himself constantly by what his eyes want. There's a, there's a song out by Ariana Grande called Seven Rings. 
Raise your hand if you know this song. It's just a moment for me to judge you. That's what I thought. No one's raising their hand. So the, the, the lyrics in this song are, I, I, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. Th- those are the lyrics over and over and over and over again. She says this, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. In the same way, he does the same thing. This is how he lives his life. He sees something, he likes it, he wants it, and he goes and gets it. And this word right here, go back to verse one, Samson saw, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's the Hebrew word raha, which we see in Genesis one and two, that God saw what he made and said it was good. And then also in Genesis three, with the fall of mankind, we see Eve seeing something, she raha, she saw it and said, this is gonna be good for me. And so we see this man, he still makes his decisions by his eyesight and says, I see something, I saw something, and now I want it, I'm gonna go after it. This is a man whose heart is bound, and his heart is bound by his sexual desires. Samson's story throughout him being a judge in the book of Judges is him going and looking for women. And, And we'll see that here, the author makes that clear. This man is bound by his sexual desires. He's bound by needing and having to have a woman. In many days in our culture, we are bound by this as well. I mean, so much so, look at this. This is what's crazy. He goes to Gaza. This is the capital for the Philistines. So he, his, his sexual desires and what he's bound by now are, are so strong that it's not that he's staying on the outskirts of the city. It's actually, it's actually that he's going into the capital, the very place where all the national leaders are at. This is how much his own sexual desires that he's bound by are driving him to make decisions. He's reckless. He doesn't care. He's willing to put his whole life in danger to get something that his heart wants so bad. He sees it, he wants it, he's going after it. And then the people of Gaza are like, hey, Samson's here. And they're like, Samson, like he's here. He's here trying to get our women. And so they're like, let's set up an ambush for him. Samson's not a cuddler. We see that he stays until midnight, all right? So he's not one that's gonna stick around and cuddle. He's here just to fill his own sexual desires. And then he's leaving town. Okay, so this is what happens. He goes to the city wall and you have to picture what a gate would look like, not from what our backyard gates look like, but what from gates would look like in this time. Gates were the source and walls were the defense mechanism for the city. So these gates were massive, 20, 30 feet tall, made of cedar. These gates were also covered in bronze because think about it, if it was just a wooden gate, you could go up and set a torch to it and the whole gate would just burn down. So they took these massive cedars, these massive gates, and they covered them in bronze metal so they couldn't be burned down. And then they were anchored in, in a sense, concreted into the walls themselves. Samson goes over to them, and what he does is he grabs hold of the gate, picks up the entire gate, and then walks it. How far? Maybe a couple miles. That, That would be impressive. 37 miles to the top of a mountain. So archaeologists have done studies to figure out how much of this, uh, how much of this gate actually weigh. On, on, on the lowest end, it would be around 5,300 pounds. On the highest end, around 20,000 pounds. So it was an act, it was just a miracle. That's all it is. Here's this guy literally taking out the very thing that makes a city feel safe. It's gate, it's walls that protects the city, and he exposes the city. And how does he do it? He lifts it all out of the ground, and then he makes a statement. He walks 37 miles from 500 feet elevation to about 3,000 feet elevation, carrying this thing on his shoulders. It's insane. But do you know what Samson starts to rely on? Is that he forgot that his strength was a gift from God. It's, It's also quite ironic that in our culture, we've painted Samson to be some super jacked guy. But if you know anything about 
um, just ethnically Jewish people, they're, they're typically not that big, like they're very average. Paul Rudd, Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, Ben Shapiro, like these are Jewish men. They're not super big, but somehow we've painted this picture. This dude is like super jacked. Like that doesn't come from the text. It does when we get to Saul and tells us that Saul was head and shoulders above other people, but it doesn't with Samson. You see, Samson's strength was given to him as a gift of God's grace for him, but he forgot it. And this strength is the very thing that he started to build his whole identity around. This is the thing that he placed his trust in. This is the thing that bound his heart. And here's, here's a question for us. It might not be big muscles, but what is the very thing that you place your confidence, trust, and faith in? What is the thing that you look to that gives you a sense of worth, that gives you a sense of purpose, that gives you a sense of confidence in life that if, if it was taken away, would crush you. If it was removed from your life, it would leave you going, I don't know if I can continue on. Again, it might not be muscles, but maybe is it your mind? Maybe is it your education? Maybe is it your just craft in, 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 in how you can deal with people and navigate situations in life? Is it that you're very calculated? What are the very things in life that you find yourself putting your trust and faith and confidence in that in the end, if that's taken away, is going to leave you going, I don't know what to do? Because for Samson, it was his strength. So we see that this man is bound so much so by sex and his desire for it that he's willing to live a reckless life. Now, verse four, we're going to see that this man is also bound by the American dream. Sex, money, and excitement. After this, he loved a woman in the Valley of Sword. Notice, one woman. Just had that woman. Next verse, this is purposeful. After this, he loved another woman. This is classic example of man going from one woman to the next. And women, watch out for this. That's what I would say. Watch out for men that need a woman after woman after woman because they're trying to satisfy something in them that they think only a woman will be able to satisfy. So now he loves another woman in the valley of Sorg, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you each 1,100 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces. All the lords of the Philistines are like, we're going to give you 1,100 pieces each. So Delilah, I'm sure just being so in love with her new man is going to be like, no chance, right? No chance at all. Love this guy like crazy. Only the the problem is the text doesn't tell us that. Go back to verse 4. After this, he loved a woman. Never says that she loved him in return. He gave his heart over to someone to play games with it, to be reckless with it. His heart was bound up in someone else and in something else that was never gonna be able to take care of it. And in fact, we see here what Delilah does, verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Again, he loves her, she doesn't love him. Oftentimes we give ourselves over to things. We give ourselves over to people and to things that oftentimes won't love sin return. This is the essence of what sin is. Sin does not love you. It's never proven its love for you. What we do is give ourselves over to the sin, though it has no ability to be able to love us back, though we trust it. We say, yeah, I'm gonna dive into this. Though God's word says, don't do that. We say, I'm gonna do this anyways and try this out. And it doesn't have the ability to love us back. It's a very telling picture that he gives his heart and is tied up into a woman that doesn't actually love him back. The text is trying to show us something here. This is what it is to give your heart away. 
This is what it is to tie your heart. They're not married. There's nothing in this text about them being married. It's just another example of him seeking pleasure. It's just another example of his heart being bound in something. Verse seven, let's keep going. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now, she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and he said to him, the Philistines, and she said to him, the Philistines are among you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known, okay? They're playing this weird game, and they're gonna keep playing it, verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me, this is such garbage. So it's supposed to make us angry when we read this, okay? Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. All right, this is when it gets rich. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pen and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. Okay, verse 15. <clears throat> and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Okay? This is what it is to be bound by sex, money, and excitement. And here's what I mean. This is a really unhealthy relationship, obviously. This is a prime example of not two people willing to sacrifice and give themselves to someone else. This is a prime example of two people using one another. They are both bound up by their own pleasure, their own desire, and the very things that their heart wants. What does she want? She wants money. But what is her money connected to? Power and influence. It's not just some, some random Philistines coming up to this point. This is the lords of, like, these are the national leaders. They are now coming to her and saying, hey, not only can we make you filthy, stinking rich, we can give you power. You will go down as the hero that took out Samson, our enemy. And she's like, I'm, I'm, I'm in. He is so codependent in a messenger relationship that he needs her. He needs the sex. He needs the excitement of just breaking strings and all this fun stuff. He needs all of this. This is where he's getting his worth and his identity from. And this is what his heart is bound up into. And so they are both using one another. That's what's going on. This is, this is, this is hideous. This is ugly. This is meant to stir up emotions because we have to remember this. Who is this written to? The Jewish people the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. It is a letter written to them. Why? Because they should read this and be like, my goodness, what is Samson doing? Is he too blind to see this? Why is he even engaging in this game? Why doesn't he just tell her where, uh, where his strength comes from? His strength clearly comes from God. Why is, he, 
Why is he playing around with this at all? He doesn't do that. Why? Because his heart is so given in to having this woman's affections, having this woman's love, and having this woman's sex, that that's the only thing that he can think and make his process and his decisions about. You know that he is shackled long before he's shackled. He is bound long before he's bound. That's the irony. This whole passage today, Judges 16, is just filled with irony. Think about it. You have a man who makes all of his decisions based upon his eyesight. At the end of the story, he loses it. You have a man who is being tempted to be bound or, or, or uh, yeah, people trying to, to bind him. However, he's already bound. He's bound by this woman. He's bound by his desires. He's bound by all these things. He's already bound. I remember when I was 18 and I was shackled and bound and brought into the courtroom, one of the most humiliating moments of my life. I remember walking in, I've shared the story with some of you guys, but I remember being bound, again, legs and feet being brought in and seeing my mom just bawling. I was humiliated. You know, all that was was a picture of something else. Yes, I was externally shackled, but inward, I was, I was shackled on the inside. All of my decisions were based in life, based upon what I wanted, what I needed, what I was going to get. So the only thing that these external shackles pointed to was something going on in my heart on a greater level that I was bound by the everything in my life that I had wanted. And that's how I made my decisions, much like Samson. I'll be honest with you guys, I have a heart for Samson. Though that might be hard for some people to hear because I look at Samson and I think this is where we go wrong. I see all of the same stuff inside of me. I see my brokenness. I see my sin. I see the way that I make decisions based upon my eyes. I see the way that I don't control my eyes, that I don't control my lust, that I don't control my desires. I see the way that I am nasty. I've, I've been an awful husband this week. I've been an awful father this week. And so I see all those things. So it's so quick for us to be like, Samson sucks, kill him, you know? Without going, actually, show me something in Samson that we don't do. Show me something in Samson that we don't get our hearts bound up in, that we don't give our hearts to, that we don't just throw ourselves into. And we start to see we do the same thing, that our hearts are bound. What is your heart bound up in? For you, what is money for? If your heart is bound in money, that's typically pointing to something else. For me, it used to be the acquisition of knowledge. I used to use all my allowance money to buy books so I could get knowledge. For some of you, money might be a means to get approval. For some of you, money might be a means to get power. What do you use money for? How is your heart tied up in it? And if you can explore that a little bit, then what you can actually see what your heart is actually bound by that it's probably not even money, that it's the very thing you're using money to get, pleasure, happiness, success, people's approval, whatever that is. What else is your heart bound by? Are you bound right now in giving your heart, like Samson, to someone, to something that in the end is not going to be the safest place for you to give your heart to? This is what she kept pushing him. She's like, I want your whole heart. Give me your whole heart. And so he's like, all right. Finally, he's like, here's my whole heart. And he gives his heart to someone without a covenant. This is the same thing for us giving our hearts in relationships without a covenant. A covenant protects a relationship. A covenant protects a marriage. Because now we are not committed to the emotions that rise and fall in a relationship. We look back and go, no, it's the covenant that I'm committed to. That wasn't there. What are you thinking 
that if you give your heart to, if you have, that your heart is bound up in that is going to give you some sort of satisfaction and worth. Maybe your heart is bound up with something else like bitterness or anger or frustration. Maybe it's bound up in the only thing you can think about is how you don't deserve something in life that has come your way. What is binding your heart? And how is it externally affecting you? How is it impacting relationships? I think these are all questions we need to wrestle with. As we look at Samson's life, we need to explore our hearts, not demonize him and just villainize him. We need to say, what do we see in Samson that we can also see in us? What are we giving our hearts to? What are they bound up in? Verse 18, when Delilah saw, look at here, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me his, all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. Oh, she's getting her money. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. You can see where Samson's trust was. He's putting his head to sleep on this woman's knees. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. Verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. As a kid, my heart was bound and given over to my dad's affections. I literally remember most of my life, most baseball games, almost everything I did, wanting so bad for my dad to be satisfied with me, for him to be pleased with me. So I gave my heart hoping that my dad would look at me and say, yes. And I remember time and time again, only hearing and being met with my dad's disappointment. So the very person I gave my heart to, I thought was going to give me what I needed. And it's the very person that crushed me because the only thing I heard and saw was disappointment. So much so that by the time I was 14, some of you know this, but I was diagnosed with seizures because of the extreme abuse. And so I thought for sure, for sure, for sure, if I give my heart to my dad, this is the person, this is the thing that's going to be able to satisfy me. And it did not. And so the very thing that I gave my heart to, that my heart was bound up in, in the end, it crushed me. And then I thought, okay, I gave my heart to this. Now I'm going to rebel against him. And so I went and got tattoos. I got an ear piercing, cartilage one. Lasted three days because it hurt really bad. True story, I almost passed out when I got it. So not, not, not a proud of that moment. But uh, I only did these things now to push back against my dad. So what I did is I gave my whole heart to my dad thinking that surely if I have his approval to satisfy me, then what I did is I transferred and said, you know what? Instead, I'm not going to let someone rule my heart. I'm going to rule my heart. I'm going to be the master of my heart. I'm going to make decisions. And in fact, no one's going to tell me what to do. Do you know what I did? I now made myself the ruler of my heart. I now said that no, no rules were going to be the rule I live by. And so I just transferred my oppression and my slavery from someone else to saying now, I'm enslaved by the fact that I'm never gonna be told what to do again. No one's gonna mess with me, anything like that. And so my heart became bound up in something else. It became bound up in the fact that I was not going to trust anyone else, that I was not gonna give my heart to anyone else, that I was not gonna do anything other than trust myself. 
which is exactly what Jeremiah 17 says. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So again, I did the same thing Samson did, but on the other end of it, I said, I'm going to now just solely trust in myself, just another level of pride and another level of arrogance to give my heart to just trusting me. Again, there's irony in this text. The man who lights their grain fields on fire is now grinding meal for them. The man who was going to prove how free he was, how strong he was, how brave he was, is now left by God to his own strength. The most scary verse in the entire book of Judges is this verse right here. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Verse 20. There is no other verse in our Bible, I think, that should scare us than to go, what in the world does that mean? It's that sometimes when we give ourselves so much over to trusting ourselves, when we give ourselves so much over and our hearts over to placing confidence in other things, including ourselves, that the very thing that God will do by his grace is turn us over to those things and allow us to have those things and allow us to run the course and see where those things go. God will allow us to see that everything else in this life is an empty well other than him. God will never break his covenant. His covenant, if you go back to Judges 13, says this, that he is going to be a Nazarite to God until death. And we know this, that at the end of his life, God hears him again. What God is doing is not utterly forsaking him. God is turning him over. This is actually what church discipline looks like as well. It is a good gift when someone says, I just want to live in my sin. Then we say, go chase your sin. And you'll see how empty that is. And at the end of it, you'll see it's an empty well that only leaves you parched. And you can only find your true satisfaction in God. So that's what he does. He gives them over to this. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. They said, our God, this is funny, our God has given Samson over into our hand, our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who, led, who, who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Okay, what's happening? We're getting to the end of the story, and there's this man who's been turned into a slave. He's had his eyes literally gouged out. He's had his head shaved, but his hair starts to grow back. They are now at the temple of Dagon, which was, he is the grain god. Like, this is the god they worshiped that they thought brought grain, which is quite funny because Samson burned up a lot of their grain fields. And they're saying, look, Look, Dagon, our God, has delivered us from our enemy. Little do they know that the hand of Yahweh and God is orchestrating all of this to bring the whole house down on them. So what we're seeing here is it's Dagon versus Yahweh. We're seeing the true enemy underneath all this, the one that all the Philistines are worshiped, the one that the Philistines are trying to grab the Israelites, the nation of God, and pull them into worship. 
And they're saying, this is the God who can save us. This is the God who can deliver us. This is the God who can rescue it, uh, who can rescue us, and he's done it. And this place is packed. It's a party. They're drinking, and they're making Samson entertain them. He's being mocked. He's being ridiculed. And he says to a man, place me next to the pillars of the house that I can place my hands on them. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, this is the only other time in the Samson narrative that we see him praying, but that's not telling. Oh Lord God, please remember me. God's gift to mankind is what Samson once thought he was. Now he knows he's a man who's just a man that can easily be forgotten. His prayer starts off something totally different, a humbled man. God, please remember me. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve to be remembered by you. I don't deserve to be known by you. Isn't it crazy that at his weakest moment of his life, he displays the greatest strength? The greatest posture a Christian can take on is on their knees before God. This is a man who now has lost his sight, but now has an ability to see that it was never his own strength. It was never his own doing that got him to where he was. It was actually God, his grace, and his mercy. So now a blind man can see, and now a weak man becomes strong. Because why? Because God stripped away the things in his life that he placed his confidence in. And here's the truth. God will strip away things in our life that we bound our hearts up into and that we place our confidence into. He'll do that out of his love and his grace, including our images. Oftentimes, the very thing that we build up and that we like to place our confidence and trust in is our image. We don't like brokenness, though we say we like brokenness. We do. We just want to see it on other people. We don't want to expose it in ourselves. God will strip away, and he will leave us exposed. He'll leave us weak, and it's in those very times, it's in those very moments where the only thing we have left in life is to say, God, please remember me. God, I need you. God, please help me. And, and I'll say, maybe you're in that spot in this room right now. That's a painful spot to be in. But we should find great encouragement in how God responds here. <clears throat> 28 again. Then Samson called the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God, look what he says, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell, the Lord's, and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Ishtiel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. We could very easily very easily turn the story of Samson into this moral lesson. And here's how we would do it. We would just say, hey, be careful when you sleep with the enemy. Be careful when you get in bed with the enemy. Be careful when you sleep with sin because this is the outcome. You will be crushed at the end of your life. We can tell our kids cute stories like, hey, be like Samson and pray at the end of your life. And then through your prayer and through having strong, strong muscles and all these things, God will bless you. But here's the thing. This is not a story that is meant to be moralized. It's actually a story that is pointing to a much greater story and to a much greater man. Think about this. Samson is sold out for 1,100 pieces of silver by the gods. Jesus is sold out 
by 30 pieces of silver to his friend Judas. Both with trusted companions are sold out. Samson looks out for his own interest. And he's supposed to be fighting for the nation of Israel. When he even is on his deathbed, the only thing he cares about is his eyeballs. He's like, Lord, give me vengeance on my enemies for they have taken away my eyeballs. Strike them down, crush them, crush me, let's crush everyone. This is Israel's rescuer. (laughs) This is Israel's judge. This is the man who gets idolized in Bible stories. He's a womanizer, he's a broken man. What do we do with this passage in Hebrews 11? This is where it gets really interesting. What do we do with it? It says this, and what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Does this sound like a man who was fighting for Israel? In fact, here's a question for you. This story is for the Israelite people. You have to ask this or else you'll miss it all. Where's Israel in the story? What are they doing? How many times has their name been mentioned? Literally, God, behind the scenes through his grace, is fighting to save people that aren't doing a thing. In fact, at the end of, at the end of Samson's life, you have a man who reaches out for the pillars. He takes his left hand and reaches it out one way. He takes his right hand and reaches out the other way. And he prays to God. He says, God, strengthen me this one time and crush me. And in crushing me, bring down this entire house and crush everyone here. At the end of Jesus's life, you have a man who has his hand stretched out from his left to his right. Only his prayer looks foundationally different. In a sense, what Jesus is saying, God, crush me and bring the house down on me and me alone for their, for their sin and their rebellion and spare and forgive every single one of them. An amen? Dang, I don't know what to do with that in here. <laughs> You're going to get charismatic. Do you know where Israel should have been? In the building with the Philistines. Just as sinful, just as broken, just as given over to their own sin. And here's the problem with every one of us in the room, myself included. This week in arguments with my wife, throughout life, whatever it is, I always think that I deserve something far greater and far better. The Israels had rebelled against God. Do you know what they were supposed to see? they were actually supposed to see themselves as the Samson. They were supposed to go, oh, Delilah's awful, but they were supposed to see themselves as they were the Samson who had given themselves over to this foreign nation to oppress them. They were supposed to be grossed out, angry, going, oh, and then go, oh, dang it, now I get it. That's us. They were supposed to see this story of Dagon and the story of the Philistines. And you know what they were supposed to see? These are our enemies. You don't sleep with your enemies. You don't give your heart over to your enemies. You don't lie with your enemies. And and, and they were supposed to go, oh my goodness, that's us. This story is also meant to point us to this fact that it's ultimately Jesus alone through his life, death, and resurrection that has conquered our greatest enemies. It's not Dagon. It's not the Philistines. And it's not Delilah, it is Satan, sin, and death. And he did it all by himself without any contribution from any one of us in this room, myself included. The only thing we get to say is Christ did it all. I should have been there. I should have been on the cross. I'm the one that sinned against God, but he went there for me. And and here's what you have to know is that our hearts 
are bound by God, our hearts are bound by grace, and our hearts are bound by the gospel. Let me unpack that quickly. Our hearts are bound by God. Once you have placed your trust and faith in Jesus, God binds himself to you. You don't bind yourself to God. God is not bound to your commitment to him. He is bound to his commitment to you. Every second of every day, God has bound you in his arms and will not let you go. That's a promise from Jesus. Also, you are bound by grace. You are not saved moment by moment by anything you do. You are bound by the love and grace of God, meaning that every second again of every day, his grace comes towards you. It's not reciprocated. Whenever you love God and then God loves you, he's not managed or controlled by that. That's not how God works. There was an old song called Love Potion Number 9. You guys know this song? Think by the searchers. So this whole song is about whipping up a concoction to make someone love you. And oftentimes we think we do the same thing. We forget that God doesn't love us based upon us whipping in a little devotional time, a little prayer time, a little Bible study time, a little I did good to my parents time and all this stuff. And now we present it to God and say, love me. God's love is bound by his grace and his grace alone. As Mark said, it's sufficient, meaning that's it. But we're also bound by the gospel. We are bound by the work that Christ finished. That means God binds himself to you through the blood of Christ. We are bound by the blood of Christ. We can't shake it off. We can't get rid of it. It binds us, meaning God's love attaches itself to us. We are bound by this. That, that means this. If you are bound by Christ and you are in Christ and you've placed your trust and faith in Christ, Christ was crushed for you. So you no longer have to be crushed for your sin because he did that on the cross, which means this too. You are no longer bound with shame. You are no longer bound with shame. I spent most of my life feeling bound by shame. It doesn't bind you. You are bound by the work of Christ that he supplied to you. You are no longer bound by guilt. Many in this room might even right now feel guilty. You are bound by a guiltless life that Christ gave to you. It's yours. And you can't unshake it. You are bound by the finished, perfect righteousness of Christ. It, it, it is on you. It is inescapable. That's what's yours. You're also bound by the Spirit. So let me end here. Maybe you're in this room and you think this is hogwash. That's an old Southern phrase. Just nonsense. I would say this. What are you giving your life to that your heart is bound up in right now? And if it was taken from you, could it crush you? Because here's the good news of the gospel. What you have in Christ, you will never lose. It will never be taken from you. It will never be removed. Therefore, the end result is I can give my heart to people. I can give my heart to, carefully, but I can give my heart to people without even knowing them because ultimately my heart is given to and tied up and bound by another place where I know that the holder of my heart, God himself, will never break it. Which means this, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, what we can do is live lives consistent to who God has made us. We can live lives consistent who God has made. This is where it gets confusing for some people because they go, well, he had Nazarite vows. Yes, those are all external things. Don't cut your hair, don't drink alcohol. But here's the thing. Those were only symbols, external symbols of something that God had already done. God had attached himself to this man, Samson. And as we read, God did not save Samson by his merit. Samson was saved by faith. Maybe the only time he showed faith was in the last breaths of his life. But Samson was saved by the object of his faith, not having great faith. We are not saved by merit. We are saved by God's grace. And in closing, for real, in closing, my hope and prayer is this, is that understanding what Christ has done and that we're bound by him frees us to live our lives in honest, faithful community to one another. 
because I don't know what your heart is bound up in right now, but I can tell you this, that I experienced a tremendous amount of freedom when I understood that my father loved me, that all the pleasure I needed, I, I hadn't received from him, and then I could live a life of true, honest community and confession. I might get pushback, but if we can live our lives sharing and displaying our brokenness to other people, will it, as Mark read earlier, ultimately bring glory to God? My encouragement is this, live in community, live in confession, pray, and do this, all because ultimately your heart is bound up by Christ, in Christ, and that's the only way that God will ever see you. Father, we thank you for this day, for your word, and that our hearts are bound by God, by your grace, and by the gospel. Let us celebrate that. God, wherever we're giving our hearts to, we're asking right now, too, that you would free us from those things that you've actually already freed us from. Let us live as free people. In Jesus' name, amen.